Good day, everybody. Welcome uh, Calvary Chapel. Today we're going to be studying uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 4. So you can begin making your way to 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Welcome to our friends in Robbinsville as well via the video. Uh, it's been a pleasure to fellowship with you guys there the last couple of weeks. And today uh, I want to draw your attention back to this book. We've taken a little break from 1 Chronicles with Pastor Scott. Uh, and now for the next three weeks we're going to be looking again uh, at First Chronicles. And today we are in the midst of a group of genealogies. Now remember, the first eight or nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles are genealogies. And it would probably be helpful at this point to remind you of the reason why Ezra, we think Ezra is the author, we're not sure, but we think he's the author of this book. The reason why he spends so much time, chapters if you will, of uh, his book going through these listings of names. It actually turns out to be quite important. Remember, Ezra is writing this book around the year or sometime during the 400s B.C. The children of Israel, they were a people that were taken captive. Now remember, the history of the nation of Israel is such that they were originally 12 tribes of people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes, they separated themselves, they scattered themselves out throughout the nation of Israel, which is essentially a rectangle, much like uh, the state of New Jersey, if you will. And they have some of the tribes here, some there, and so on. About uh, the year 1000 or so B.C., so they've been in the land about four or 500 years, around the year 1000 B.C., the nation split. And a portion of the nation, they, ten tribes, they formed what became known as Israel. Again, they kept that name, Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they separated, if you will, they seceded, you might say, and they formed the nation of Judah. Around the year 700 B.C., the neighboring nation to the north, or the empire to the north, was a group of people called the Assyrians, Syria today. And the Assyrians came down into those northern tribes of Israel, the top portion of the rectangle, and they captured uh, the Israelites and they led them into captivity. We call that the Assyrian captivity. And that roughly went from 722 B.C. into the uh, about the mid-600 B.C.s, or 600s B.C. It wasn't until around the year 586 that a new nation came in, and this time the empire of the Babylonians, all the way over there on the other side of the Fertile Crescent uh, in the Iraq region, and they made their way around, and they not only captured and conquered the northern ten tribes, but they went even further south into Judah. And so the nation of Judah, or the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they were led into their own captivity as well. We call that the Babylonian captivity. And that took place roughly between the year 586 and 516 um, B.C. Well, here we are now in the 400s. And Ezra, who is a scribe or a religious lawyer of his day, he is taking leadership of the nation to bring this people over there in Babylonian captivity to bring them back into the land. It's very important that you, you remember or that you understand that the people that are living in Babylon, 
The vast majority of those Israelites never lived in Israel. Their great-grandmother did, but they themselves or their grandmom or their dad was born in uh, Babylon in captivity, and so were they. And so the vast majority of the people that will be leaving Babylon and making their way back to Israel had never lived there before. And the purpose that Ezra is setting out to do, he studies his scripture, he goes back into uh, the Pentateuch and the early books of the scripture, the books of Moses, he makes his way into the book of Joshua, and he looks at all these places of genealogical records, and he looks at all these places of the apportionment of land, and then he informs these new people who were born in captivity that this is who the rightful leaders are, this is where you're going to live, this is who the priests are going to be, and so on and so forth. And so in chapters 1 through 3, his purpose is to determine who the rightful rulers of Israel would be. What, do we just hold some big election? Is that what we'll do? And we'll decide in that way? Or will we continue to follow the way that was prescribed a thousand years earlier and follow it through the particular lines and make our way to the line of Judah and follow David and Solomon and so on and so forth? That's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through about 7 are going to deal not with who's going to be the ruler, but where are these people going to live? Is this going to be like Walmart on Christmas Eve or, or uh, Thanksgiving Eve or something? When, you know, when everyone's locked outside the door and then they open the door and everybody runs in and claims land for themselves? Are we going to do it that way? Or rather, are we going to have a systematic, orderly way? And so where your family used to live, albeit your great-great-grandmother, is where you are going to be able to return to and so on. Chapters 4 through 7 are going to deal with that. And then in the second part of chapter 7 and, and 8 and, and following, it will deal with, well, who are the religious leaders going to be? What's the priestly line going to be? And how will that be determined? Can anyone just put in an application to become a priest? Or will we continue to follow the way that we followed a thousand years ago? So that's Ezra's purpose. His purpose is to take information that was a thousand years old from 1400 B.C., and convey that to the people now in the year 400 B.C. Well, let me give you a little history. I mentioned earlier that the people that inhabited the land prior to the captivity were called the 12 tribes of Israel. That whole story begins back in Genesis chapter 12. There was a man by the name of Abram, and Abram lived in a place that was called Haran. And Haran is roughly, again, today where the nation of Iraq is. It was a very polytheistic nation. We learn in the scriptures that Abram and his father were both polytheistic, and that simply means they believed in many, many gods uh, and worshipped those many, many gods. And then one day, the God of heaven, the God we would call Jehovah, finds Abram, speaks into his life, and he said, Abram, I want you to leave this place and all the, your possessions and all these people in your family, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And so here is God calling Abram to step out in faith, and his response is he's going to bless him by making him a great nation and also giving him a land or a place that he will be a nation of, if you will. Abram's 75 years old when this promise comes his way. No children at this point in his life. His wife is 65 years old, and yet God makes this promise to him and ultimately to his offspring. God's going to have to do a miracle here. We read a little bit later in the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, in verse 18. And the Lord is reiterating his covenant, his contract that he makes with Abram. Actually, if you will, 
he's specifying things a little bit. Let me, let me give you a little more detail is what the Lord says to Abram. And there in 22.18 he says, Through your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through one of your kids is what he is saying. Now at that time, Abram had two children. This is now as Abram is approaching 99 years of age. He had one son who was born of the slave woman, um, her name being Hagar, and the child uh, as a result of that union was Ishmael when Abram was about 86 years of age. And now he has a second child whose name is Isaac. And Isaac is the son of his wife, Sarah, the son of the one who the promise was originally made to. The promise was made to Abram and Sarah that they would have a kid. And that kid's name is Isaac. And so whereas the original promise is made to Abram, if you look in Genesis chapter 26, remember the promise was to your seed. So he's got an Ishmael here and he has an Isaac over here. In Genesis chapter 26, we read, God speaking to Isaac, he says, And I will be with you, Isaac, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all of these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abram your father, Abraham your father, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so the point I'm making here is first Abram, then that line splits, and then we're going to follow Isaac. And God says, Isaac, it's through your family. Not Ishmael's, but through your family that I'll give the land and I will bless all the nations. The blessing of all the nations means that the Messiah is going to come from that family line. But for our purposes today, we're worried about the promised land. And who was the promised land promised to? It was promised to Isaac. Now you look a little bit further in the book of Genesis chapter 28. And in chapter 28, verse 13, we see that God is addressing Isaac's son. Now Isaac himself has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And we see that he is addressing the second of those two sons, Jacob. And he says to Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so now we've gone from Abram, splitting off Ishmael, then to Isaac, splitting off Esau, then to Jacob. And now the promise is to Jacob. Now Jacob, one night after a night of wrestling with God, literally, that we learn about in Genesis chapter 32, God touches Jacob's life. And Jacob essentially has lost the battle, but he's grabbing on to God's feet, if you will, and he won't let go. And God's like, let me go, let me go. And he said, I won't let go unless you bless me. And he says it with tears, we learn uh, in the scripture as we read the minor prophets. And God touches the hip of Jacob. And forever from that point on, we learn that Jacob walked with a limp. I think that's significant because something happens when we encounter God and we come into the presence of God. He touches us and he changes our lives forever so that we walk differently having encountered him. And as a symbol of that difference of walk that Jacob would experience, God changes his name and essentially says, so what's your name? He says, Jacob. He said, well, we're going to call you something different. You see, God knew Jacob's name. Jacob's name meant deceiver. It meant supplanter. It meant heel catcher, a person you're trying to walk along, you're not bothering anyone, and then somebody pulls a stick out and knocks your foot so that you trip over and you fall. That's what Jacob's name meant, heel catcher. And that's what Jacob's life was. He was a deceiver. He was a heel catcher. He tripped up other people so that he might advance. They may fall down and break their, their nose or something, but at least he would advance, and that's good enough for me. And that's how you get ahead in life. And God says to him, what's your name? What are you all about? And he says, well, I'm a heel catcher. 
He says, you're no longer going to be a heel catcher. You're not going to be Jacob anymore. You are going to be Israel. And the word Israel means prince of God, or you might interpret it governed by God. And Jacob, who becomes Israel, his life is forever different. He becomes a man no longer governed by self and for self, but he becomes a man that is governed by God and changed. And from then on in the scriptures, uh, almost always, occasionally not, but from then on almost always, Jacob is called Israel. But for our purposes today, when I refer to the man, I'm going to refer to him as Jacob. When I refer to the nation, I'll refer to them as Israel because it can get kind of confusing for us. What are you talking about, the man or the nation? So Jacob is the person, Israel will be the country for us. Would you please turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 2? I know we're studying chapter 4 today. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, notice the words that begin that chapter. It says, now these are the sons of Israel. And then it'll go on and list 12 sons. It'll say Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Israel. These are the men that would make up the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. And they are the people that will inherit the land first promised to Abraham and then specified down to Isaac and then down to Jacob and then ultimately to his 12 sons. Those 12 sons would possess the land. Let me give you the history of the land real quickly as it relates to the nation of Israel. Abram, as I said, was called out of his land and he he was told to go to this promised land, a place that I would show you. That land was called Canaan at the time. And Abram lived as a temporary visitor in a foreign land when he was there. Ultimately, he knew it would be ours or mine or my family's, but he didn't live there necessarily uh, as a permanent resident. He lived in tents. And then when he uh, passed off the scene, his son kind of stepped into it uh, and took it over. And during the days of Jacob, the, the people were growing in numbers. They were shepherds. They uh, were sort of foreign residents of the land and all this sort of stuff until a severe famine hit the land. And that forced the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, they, they didn't have the food, they didn't have the money, whatever it may be, to get food or the resources available to them. And so they were told, go down to Egypt, where there's plenty that is down there, uh, and get food for our family so that we can survive. And so the children of Israel made their way down into Egypt there. And some unique circumstances occurred. And the children of Israel decided they were going to reside there for a little while. They were sort of distinguished guests of the king. You can read the story in the book of Genesis. And as distinguished guests of the king, everything was provided for them, and it was great, and everything was wonderful. But eventually that king died, and a new king came in, and then a new king came in after him, a pharaoh came in, and they didn't know who uh, Israel was, they didn't know who one of the sons Joseph was, or who these 12 tribes were, and the nation of Israel kept growing, and they just sort of became assimilated into that culture, and they were made slaves foreign slaves within the culture. You can live here, but you're going to work for us having lived here. And for 400 years, we learned that the children of Israel served as slaves in the land of Egypt until God raised up a deliverer. Charlton Heston comes on the scene and he helps lead them out. That's the story, the Ten Commandments. But he he raises up Moses. And Moses comes in and he says to the Pharaoh, he says, God has said, let my people go. And he says, I don't know your God, and I will not let your people go. And Moses says, oh, man, we're going to have to do this the hard way. He said, please just let us go. 
And one after another, you have these plagues that are introduced upon Egypt until eventually the, king, the, the pharaoh of Egypt says, just get him out of here and go. And the children of Israel leave. They cross over the Red Sea. That's the story of the Exodus. And they make their way onto the western side, eastern side excuse me, of the Red Sea. Now they are in the area today that we would call the Sinai Peninsula, sort of the middle eastern portion of the nation of Egypt to this day uh, down there. And also into the area that at that time was called Moab, which is western Jordan. And there for 40 years, the nation of Israel wanders around with Moses as their leader. Still not entered back into that land where Abraham resided as a foreign resident. The the promised land. Still not there yet. But they're on their way there and they're getting closer. And after 40 years of wandering, the Lord brings um, the children of Israel led by Moses to this mountain. And in Deuteronomy 34, this is what we read. It says, Now then Moses... He went up to the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. Today, if you go to the nation of Israel, uh, it is called the Mount of Temptation because they believe uh, that some significant event in the Scripture, Jesus' temptation occurred there. I don't think it did necessarily. Uh, Actually, what they believe is that's where Jesus was brought when Satan said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They believe that was the place. Maybe it was. Who knows? Uh, but if you go up to that Mount of Temptation and you get up to the top of it and you overlook, uh, first you're going to see Jericho, which is part of Palestinian territory today, and then there's the Jordan River, and then on the other side is the land of Israel. And you can see, as far as the eye can see, both directions, you just see land for, I don't even, I can't even guess, I would say 80, 90 miles in both directions of land. Well, this is where Moses is brought up to look out and to see all of this land that goes on forever and forever. And the passage continues. It said, The the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, and the city of the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land, notice, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that I will give it to you for your offspring. I've let you see it, Moses, with your own eyes, but you will not go in there. And so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. So here here the Lord is reminding Moaz, this is the land, the promised land that I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Moses, you've brought the people, and now they're about to enter in. Now Moses died, he did not enter in, but his protege did. His apprentice, a fellow by the name of Joshua, and that's the story of the book of Joshua. It's the story of the children of Israel entering into the promised land, the battles that they had to fight, and then eventually gaining victory. Now, the book of Joshua covers a span of about 27 years. Right around Joshua chapter 13, they are ready now to possess it. They've already had their victories. They had a defeat here and there thrown in. But now they are ready to possess this land, which was formerly called, anybody remember? Canaan and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Mosquitoites, and the Amorites, and all of those ites that had possessed the land, now the children of Israel is strong enough to go in through the power of the Lord and have victory, and then, maybe even more so, because you only need one guy to get victory if the Lord's on your side. It's an unfair fight for the millions of people that you come against if it's you and the Lord, but they needed people to possess the land. And the children of Israel are large enough now that they can possess the land. And right around the middle of the book of Joshua, I think it starts around Joshua chapter 13, Joshua begins 
the apportionment of the land. And so he takes each of the tribes, he takes a map, if you will, and he carves that map up into 12 sections. And he says, all right, section number one, Reuben, this is where your tribe is going to live. You get a nice little section here. Judah, you're going to be over there. Simeon, you'll be up there. Dan, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, uh, Gad, Asher, and so on. And all 12 of the tribes get a portion of land. That's found in Joshua chapter 13, and you can read that. But that occurred in 1400 B.C. And it, it roughly looked like this. I believe we have a map of that that we can put up there for you. It roughly looked like this, and, and you may not be able to read every word, but essentially what you see is that the land is divided up. Some people get a slightly larger area of land. Sometimes that has to do because they lived in like a deserty region or whatever, whereas another person may have lived in a very rich uh, area with uh, lush grounds and so on and so forth. But this is roughly what, uh, what Joshua created in Joshua chapter 13 and following. Remember, that's 1400 B.C. Now we are in 400 B.C., a thousand years later. And all of these people are coming back to the land that had never seen this map before, and they had never lived in that land before. And Joshua, or excuse me, Ezra says, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a, a system of order to return to our land. And we're going to continue to follow the things that God taught us in the past and his methods in the past. We're going to stay true to them. And so he went and got all of the genealogical records. He got his book of uh, Genesis, chapter 49. He got his, uh, his books there of uh, Numbers, uh, and he looked at that. He got his book of Joshua, and he took all that information, and he said, this is the land that was apportioned. He begins that process in chapter 4 of First Chronicles with Judah. Now, Judah is not the eldest son of Israel or Jacob, the man Jacob. I think he's the fourthborn. Reuben was the eldest. But Reuben, go back and read the book of Genesis, he got himself into some trouble, and so he sort of lost the privilege of the firstborn as far as inheritance is concerned. And that privilege and a double portion of a blessing was passed on to this man Judah. And you can read about it in Genesis 49 if you're interested. And so from Judah, who's not the eldest son, you are going to get the, the kingly line, and the Messiah is going to come from Judah. That's a portion of the blessing. You're also going to get a larger portion of land. And if you wanted to read the allotment of the land, like I said in Joshua, chapters 13 through 15, one of the things you would see there compared with here in First Chronicles is the method that was used to describe the land. In the book of Joshua, nobody had really lived there before. And so he can only use geographical features. Things like over by the edge of such and such river or all the way to the edge of the sea and then down toward the beginning of the wilderness. He's using geographical features. When you look at First Chronicles chapter 4, he's going to use the names of key people and he's going to use the names of cities because cities had been built up. They weren't inhabited for 70 years, but they had built, been built up already with road signs and everything on the side of the road. So he can say such and such lived over by... Bethlehem. And so he's going to name Bethlehem, for instance. And so that's where their go land is going to be. So one other thing I need to point out, if you've been here with us for our previous studies, one of the things that I've been doing is creating these family trees, these charts that show you from this man who had this son, who had these sons, and so on and so forth. We can't really do that anymore in First Chronicles 4 and following, because that's not his purpose. He's not trying to trace an individual to get to a new individual. Remember I talked about the people bridge? 
He's not trying to create a people bridge, but rather he is trying to show you the lines of a whole bunch of key people. And so he's going to trace this family line for two or three generations and say, blam, that's those key people. And they settled over by West Windsor, New Jersey. And then he's going to trace these guys said, blam, and these people, they were over by Allentown. And these people, they were by Trenton. And these people over here, they were by Ewing. So essentially, what he is saying is something like this. Cousin Joe and his family from the tribe of Judah, they lived over here. Cousin Bob and his family, they were down over in this region as well. And that's uh, what you're going to be reading. Actually, the next three or four chapters is information like that. Now, you may not know who Cousin Joe and Bob is, but you get the idea, right? So let's go ahead and read. That was the intro. Okay. And the intro doesn't count toward the time of the sermon. All right. So we'll start now. Please set the clock. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the sons of Judah, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal, Reah, the son of Shobal, fathered Jehath, and Jehath fathered Ahumai and Lehad. These were the clans of the Zorathites. And so again, imagine, you, like if I said, like the Zorathites, you're like, oh yeah, they lived over there by where Walmart is now, or something like that. You'd know what we were talking about. These were the sons of Edom, Jezreel, Ishma, Idbash, and the name of their sister was Hazalaponi. And she has a little pony, I guess is her name. And Punoel fathered Gedur, and Ezer fathered Husha. These were the sons of her, the firstborn of Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. Remember that name? Nobody remembers the name of Bethlehem? Oh, little town. Okay, apparently you guys are slower today. Uh, verse 5, Asher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hela and Nera. Nera bore him Ahuzam, Hefer, Temeni, and Hashatari. These were the sons of Narah, the sons of Hela, Zereth, Izhar, and Ethnon. Kaz fathered Anub, Zobaba, and the clans of Arharhel, the son of Harum. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Caleb, the brother of Shuha, fathered Meher, who fathered Eshton. Eshton fathered Beth Rapha, Pasia and Tahina, the father of Ernahash. These are the men of Rekah, the sons of Kenaz, Othniel and Sariah, and the sons of Othniel, Hethoth and Menatai. Menatai fathered Orpah, and Sariah fathered Joab, the father of Geharisham, so called because they were craftsmen. Now the sons of Caleb, the, sons of, the son of Jephunneh, Iru, Elah, and Naim, and the son of Elah, Kenez, the sons of Jahalel, Ziph, Zipha, Tereah, and Azarel, the sons of Ezra, Jether, Merid, Epher, and Jalon. These are the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Merid married. And she conceived and she bore Miriam, Shammai, and Ishba, the father of Eshtemoah. And the Judahite wife bore Jared, the father of Gedur, Heber, the father of Soko, and Jekathel, the father of Zenoah. The sons of the wife of Hodiah, the sister of Nahum, were the fathers of Kila, the Garmite, and Eshtemoah, the Makathite, the sons of Shimon, Amnon, Rimna, Benhanan, and Talon, the sons of Ishi, Zoheth, and Ben-Zoheth, the sons of Shelah, the son of Judah, Ur, the father of Lika, Lada, the father of Merishah, and the clans of the house of linen workers at Beth Ashbiah, and Jochum, and the men of Kuziba, and Joash, and Seraph, who ruled in Moab, and they returned to Lahem. 
Now the records, they are ancient. These were the potters who were inhabitants of Nataim and Gadara, and they lived there in the king's service. And so we have this genealogy. Now, we want to read it because we want to study all the scripture, and so we don't want to just skim through and say it's not significant. Um, but for these people, it would have been very significant because essentially I'm rattling off the names to you of places that they would have a recollection of. The, great, the old guy that's on the trip back, the great-grandfather of somebody on the trip back, he would know where these places are, and so they're reestablishing things. Now, if you're like me, occasionally, as you're reading through this, your mind is probably just sort of skimming through. You're not really paying much attention. And I don't know if it's that important to me. So you're just kind of, and then a name you recognize. And you're like, I know that name. Bethlehem. Yeah, I know that. I heard of that. Ephrathah. I heard of that one too. And one of those names that you might recognize is the name Jabez. Now, if we were to teach this message back in the year 1999, I suspect nobody in this room would know the name Jabez. But there was a book that came out in the spring of 2000 written by a man named Bruce Wilkinson, and it was entitled The Prayer of Jabez. And somehow, Bruce Wilkinson took two verses and he wrote like a 10-chapter book uh, on those two verses. And it swept the Christian world. It was actually a New York Times bestseller called, as I said, The Prayer of Jabez. And so I want to take some time and I want to stop there for a name that many of us might recognize and just sort of ask these questions. Who is Jabez? And why is a book about this man who prayed a prayer 3,500 years ago, how is it that it could make it to the New York Times bestsellers list? Well, prior to considering the book, let's discover what we know about Jabez. In verse 9 we, and 10, we learn, I think, four things about Jabez. The first thing that we learn about Jabez is that he was more honorable than his brothers. That's found in verse 9. Secondly, we learn that his mother experienced great difficulty in giving birth to him because she names him Jabez. And she also says, because I bore him in pain. And so Jabez is a Hebrew word, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for painful or sorrowful. And so she names this particular son Jabez. I thought all kids were born with great pain. Uh, and some kids, they become a great pain. Um, but needless to say, uh, she names this kid Jabez because he caused her great perhaps physical pain in the process, or maybe emotional, I'm not sure. Thirdly, we learn about Jabez, is that Jabez called upon the God of Israel. And then finally, God heard, and he granted Jabez's request. Let's go back and look at them one by one. First, that he was more honorable than his brothers. This may not be saying much at all based on who his brothers were and what sort of people they were. If they were a bunch of clowns, to say that he was more honorable than is not necessarily much of a compliment. Because look at this group of people that I've got to hang around and be with. But the point of this statement is that his life uh, that was lived for God stood out. And that's a significant thing. It, was, it will mark, a person that lives for God will be marked as a person that is different. Jabez stood out. Jabez sort of rose uh, to the forefront. People took notice of him because he was a man that sought to honor God. And when I think of that type of a person, a person like Jabez, that does stand out amongst his contemporaries, the person I think to in the scripture is the man Daniel. Now, Daniel is one of those captives that Ezra is now leading back to the land of Israel that we're talking about here in the year 400 B.C. He was one of those captives. And yet, in the midst of that captivity, Daniel decided, I'm going to live for God. And I'm going to shine in the midst of this dark world that we're living in here. I'm not going to hide my faith. I'm going to be who I am. And we learn this in Daniel chapter 6. 
In Daniel 6, it says that the people uh, that were observing Daniel could find no ground for complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And so the men said, as they were scheming, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Isn't that interesting? The only way they could find a complaint against this guy is, was as it related to his relationship with God. And here's the thing. If you read the book of Daniel, the thing that you discover about Daniel wasn't that he made this name for himself or this, he became this person of honor that people looked at and said, you're different. Your life stands out amongst the lives of everyone else around here. It wasn't from his grand speeches. It wasn't the, the great things that he said to people to say, I'm a different person. It was from the life that he lived. And people knew that he was a different person from the life. It was a steady, consistent, faithful life. And that was the thing that set him apart, was the life that he lived. So like J Daniel, Jabez faithfully lived his life, and people, and ultimately God, took notice of that. And I bring this up here because it's exactly what Jesus calls, called to his disciples of his day, and he calls to you and I. And that is the importance of the lives that we are living. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you, followers of me, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Going on, switching metaphors, he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I think the first lesson that we can take from Jabez, which is reiterated in the Scripture, is that you and I, if we are a follower of Christ, we are called to live a life that faithfully proclaims the mystery of who God is to a fallen world. The lives that we live should stand out. Not so much with the words that we say, but the person that we are. They should be different from the vast majority of people that are around us. And they may even be different from the vast majority of people within the congregation as we're seeking to follow God. As a follower of Christ, we need to shine brightly amidst a dark world. Daniel did that. Jabez did that. The second thing we learned about Jabez is that he was born amidst great difficulty and pain and sorrow. Apparently, his mother experienced great difficulty in giving birth to him because she names him Jabez. Again, she said, because I bore him in pain. And the second lesson that I think we can pull from here is this, is that difficulties and challenges and sorrows that we may have in our life currently or we may have had in our past or they may be coming in our future, those difficulties and challenges and sorrows do not have to keep us from living a life that is pleasing to God. Jabez responded to his sorrow and his adversity by crying out to God, not against God. And I think many Christians in our day, they use adversities and sorrows to cry out against, excuse me, they cry against God. God, this isn't good. God, you're not good to me. You're not loving. God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't like you anymore. These sorts of things. But Jabez teaches us the lesson that in our difficulties, we can look to God for our help. In our difficulties, we can look to him for strength to persevere. In our difficulties, we can look to him for daily encouragement. Jabez was like Job. You remember all the difficulties Job went through? And Job submitted himself 
to the sovereign will of a God that he knew to be good. And he said this famous phrase, though he slay me, yet will I continue to trust him. That's a lesson that we can learn from Job. It's a lesson that we can learn from Jabez. And quite honestly, and I, and I say it a lot, and you're probably sick of hearing it, but it's part of the reason why I'm so bothered by the prosperity teachers and things like that that you see on a TV station like the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Because quite honestly, what they teach is that God's chief desire is to give you smooth sailing with a rich bank account and great health and no difficulties. And the problem with that teaching, besides the fact that it's the opposite of what the Scripture teaches, remember Jesus' words were, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The trials are going to come our way. So the problem with that teaching, besides the fact that it doesn't align up with Scripture, the problem with that teaching is it sets us up to question God when the difficulties do come our way. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I've been trying to live faithfully for you, and this is the way that you repay me? God, you're failing me. Why? You see, Jabez wasn't fooled to think that God owed him anything and that difficulties and challenges that come our way are thus reasons for us to doubt the goodness of who God is instead he cried out to the Lord in the midst of all that life would bring him and God was pleased by that that's why it's so ironic about the book the prayer of Jabez essentially the prayer of Jabez the book teaches this if you take that those verses there primarily found in verse 10 which again says, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. What the book teaches is if you take that prayer and you repeat it once a day for 30 days and you testify to other people that that is what you are doing, that God then will bless you and he will increase your land and he will keep you from harm and so on and so forth. The general idea is that the prayer becomes a mantra that you mindlessly repeat, and then God is obligated to meet your request. And he'll return after 30 days with great blessing, power, and land. Quite honestly, this is a message that can only be preached in a place like the United States of America. It's an American way of thinking. It's quick, it's easy, it's no mess, and there's hardly any effort. It's kind of the way I like to cook. Quick, easy, no mess, and hardly any effort. You pop it in the microwave once a day for 30 days, and voila, instant blessing comes out. Hank Hanegraaff calls it the quintessential example of fast food Christianity. God did not answer Jabez's prayer because he repeated some mantra consistently for 30 days. He answered Jabez's prayer because both it, the prayer, and Jabez's life was in line with God's will. And Jabez, uh, Jabez honored God daily. He was a faithful steward that God could trust. So God granted what he asked because he knew that he could use him. Look, all of us, I think, we want to experience the blessing of God. How many of you would like to experience the blessing of God? Lots of hands. How many of you want a, a good curse from God or two? I know hands there. You don't see any. I don't see any in Robbinsville either. Alrighty? And so we all want to experience the blessing of God. Those blessings do not come from quick fix mantra prayers. Those blessings come as a result of daily choices to honor God. And let me clarify one thing. What am I talking about when I say blessing? We've been conditioned to believe blessing means I have a good job. I have a lot of authority at my job. I'm making a good paycheck. 
I have two real nice cars out in the driveway. My kids are well behaved and going to a fine private school. We think that's all blessing. How you doing? I'm doing great. God is blessing me. And that part, how you doing? Well, not very well. I don't have a job right now. I don't have a car that is working reliably right now. My kids, they're struggling uh, in school right now and in their walk with Christ and all these sorts of things. And we would look at that and say, man, you're not being blessed. You must be being cursed. And we think that the blessing is the material things and the cursing is these things over here. But here's the thing. You may not have a job, but God might be greatly blessing you and working in your life. You may not have a car that works reliably, but God still might be greatly blessing you. we got to pull away from this mindset that when everything is wonderful, that's blessing. And when things are difficult, that that is cursing. That's not what the Scripture teaches. And Job was a man that was blessed in the midst of those difficulties. Jabez is a man who had great sorrows, but he was a man that was blessed. Daniel lived in captivity and was thrown in a lion's pit, and yet he was blessed. In the midst of difficulties, we can be a people that are blessed. It's not about the material possessions and all these sorts of things. It's about the harmony of relationship that we are experiencing with God. And that does not come from a quick fix mantra prayer whose words you don't even know anymore. You just memorize them, but they mean nothing to your heart anymore. It comes from a life of daily commitment of walking with Him. Now, I did a Strong's Concordance search. And if you don't know what a Strong's Concordance is, you need to because it will help you in your study of the Scripture and in your walk with Christ. You can buy the big book if you want to that takes up your entire desk to pull it out there. Or now they offer it free online. Strong's Concordance. Just type it in. It is an amazing resource. And how it essentially works is you type in a key word. I know there's a verse. I forget what that verse is. It talks about don't bring me pain. I can't think of it. You type that phrase in. Blah! It pops right up there. And you have the verse. And you're like, great. And then you can move on with your study. Well, I typed in the phrase, blessed are the, or blessed is the, just into my Strong's Concordance. And it brought up something like 60 Scripture references that include those words, blessed is the man, or blessed is the one, or something like that. And I've gone through those, and here's the thing I discovered. As you go through those, none of those talk about blessed is the man that prays the prayer of Jabez 30 times a day. But every one of them references a man that is dealing with, or a woman, that is working on their relationship with God daily. And so I pulled out about 12 of them. And you might think this is a little bit tedious, we get the point, but I want to nail it down for you. So there's no doubt about it. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of, seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Nothing about a prayer of Jabez, but it's about a man who is making his decisions not on the wisdom and the advice of the world around me, but on the Scriptures. That's a man that is walking with a lot or with a little, but is still experiencing the blessing of God. Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Lord, I'm going to trust You, even though... Uh, I don't have the, the money's not in the bank account to do this. I'm going to trust that you will take care of me. You will provide me. But I'm going to trust that even though I'm going through this temptation, that you provide a way of escape. And I'm going to take that way of escape, and the temptation will pass. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. That's a man that is blessed. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Remember, this is the one where uh, David had been hiding his sin for a year. And experiencing all of that turmoil that goes from an unclean conscience or an unclear conscience there as he's struggling with all of that and wrestling, saying in one place that it was as if my bones were breaking within me. But then he confessed. And he was set free. 
And oh, how happy is the man, is how it might be translated. How blessed to be able to be in right relationship with God and with others and the freedom that comes with that. Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Psalm 84, blessed are those who find their strength in you and whose heart are on the highways of Zion. Psalm 94, blessed is the man whom you discipline. What? I don't know if I like that one. Discipline means teach. This is the person that is going to the Lord daily and say, Lord, I'm not content with the person I am. I want you to change me. I want you to grow me. I want you to transform me through the renewing of my mind that the Apostle Paul teaches. Lord, I don't want to be the same guy five years from now. I want to grow in my walk with you. Do the necessary process. Teach me. Discipline me. Train me to walk in that righteousness. That's a blessed man. I am so glad I am not the guy I was five years ago. And I'm certainly glad I'm not the guy I was 20 years ago. But every day, I'm coming back to the Lord, or trying to every day, coming back to the Lord and saying, Lord, expose me, reveal me, show me, grow me. And I'm very happy as a result of that. Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. See, walk in the law of the Lord, not just pray some empty prayer. 19.2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. It's what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a person that is humble and is walking through this earth humbly. Blessed is the meek, the one who doesn't have to get his way in all things, but is he willing to just pull back and say, Lord, I'm going to entrust this to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So here you are, and earlier I said, who wants to be blessed? And everybody raised their hands here. And so here you are. These are things that you can be doing. Searching out your life and saying, am I walking humbly? Am I a person that is uh, poor in spirit? Am I a person that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Am I a person that puts his trust in God and not man or my possessions that are around me? Am I a person that has my sins covered and that I've confessed my sins before the Lord? That first time when I came to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but then on a daily basis when I fall and when I stumble, coming back to him and having him wash me clean, that nothing stands between me and God and other people. You keep doing those things on a daily basis, and you're going to be a life that is more honorable than your contemporaries, than your brothers that are around you. And you're going to be a, a life that stands out. And you're going to be a life that the Lord looks on. And he'll say, that one there is blessed. Also in Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I didn't feel right leaving that one out. I had to put that in there as well. None of us want to be persecuted. I don't think we should seek persecution necessarily but you have to wonder if jesus said it that the tribulations would come and there's never any experience of it in your life life you have to wonder why am i really living my life for christ or am i so sold out so or, uh, not sold out but so given over to this world where i can blend in quite nicely and be of no uh no strain to anyone around me well as we said everyone wants to be blessed but I think the vast majority want to be blessed as long as it doesn't take too much effort. Well, Jabez discovered that the path to God's blessing is a life of submission to God's will. It's not some quick fix prayer. It's not some microwavable prayer. But it's daily submission. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our painful past, regardless of our painful present or our future that is ahead of us, we can seek the Lord like Jabez did, with our whole heart. Remember, it says in the Scripture, you shall seek me and you shall find me. 
And I think that finding of God is what pours forth the blessing in our lives that it really doesn't matter what is going on around us. And it's during that you shall seek me and you shall find me if you search for me with all of your heart. Or again, to use Jesus' words, if you're hungering and thirsting for me. Well, I want to conclude today by reading from Henry Ironside's commentary. And part of the reasons why I like to read commentaries that are 100 years or 200 years or even 300 years old is because they've, they've stood the test of time. The truth that they spoke of was the true, uh, truth then and it's the truth now in our 21st century. And so I appreciate reading some of these older guys. And Henry Ironside, he wrote essentially in the 1920s and 1930s. And many of you know in the 1920s, 1930s, the United States was going through a very difficult time financially, the Great Depression. And I'm sure a book like The Prayer of Jabez wasn't selling too many copies uh, in that particular day. And this is what Ironside said. This is how he uh, commented on Jabez's prayer. And I believe there's great truth here, and so I want to read it to you. He says, Jabez's prayer is fourfold. He first asked for God to bless him indeed, and that is to give him true happiness which is found as one prevails in their walk with God. Secondly, Jabez prayed that God would enlarge his border because he was not content to go on with only what he had, but he wanted to enter into and enjoy more of the inheritance of the Lord. He was not content only with what he had, but he wanted more of the inheritance of the Lord. You and I, as we walk in the newness of our life, we want more of the inheritance of the Lord. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Take every part of me and put it out so there's more room for you to live through me. That's what Jabez wanted. Thirdly, he prayed that God's hand would be with him because he counted on God's protecting care for his life. And then finally, he prayed that God would keep him from evil that it might not make him sorrowful. And essentially, in praying that particular prayer, what he realized is what we need to realize is that the only thing that can rob a child of God of our joy is when we're walking in sin. If we can keep ourselves right before the Lord and not be walking in sin, not that we don't stumble and fall, but that habitual going back to, I don't care, Greg's going to rule, and everybody else takes second place, or whatever. If we can keep ourselves from that, Jabez learned that that's the place of great blessing. Amen?